Uh, please have a seat. Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. It's good, uh, good to see everybody here tonight. Uh, can I ask you to turn with me, please, uh, back to our Old Testament reading, which was uh, Daniel chapter 11. Uh, we're on page 893 of the Church Bibles, page 893. Uh, we're taking Daniel 11, verse 36, all the way to the end of chapter 12. This is going to be last in our Daniel series. Next week, we're going to uh, start a new series going through half, up to halfway through uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, so we start next week, over the next few weeks after that, looking at Hebrews. So you might want to uh, read in advance. Uh, can I get you uh, also, in addition to opening your Bibles to Daniel 11, uh, in your bulletin, if you don't mind to open the center page of the bulletin, the center page of the bulletin, uh, you'll see an outline of today's sermon and also the cross-references. So it'll be, happy, it'll be helpful to have those open, so easy for us to, instead of flipping around the Bible, just read the cross-references from there. All right? So... Send a page of the bulletin and uh, page 893 of the church Bibles. Got all that? Let me lead us in prayer and we'll begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have been speaking to us by your Spirit through your Word uh, as it has been read and sung. Uh, and we pray now that you continue to do that as we consider this passage together. Uh, Father, we pray that, uh, that your Spirit will enable me to teach this uh, properly. Uh, may he strengthen me and may I uh, preach in his power. Uh, and may he work in each one of our hearts. Uh, may he cause us to respond rightly to you uh, and to prepare us uh, for whatever may lie ahead. Uh, so we commit this time to you, Father, asking for your help, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had an enemy? Now, maybe someone at work who, who, who thinks they didn't get that promotion because of you, and now they just look for any opportunity to undermine you or to hurt your career. Or maybe it's an ex-boyfriend who's angry with you for leaving him, and he stalks you and he threatens you and he, and he wishes you harm. Or maybe there's someone on Facebook who you don't even know in real life. But somehow or other, they've been offended by some of the things you've posted. And every time you post something, they make sure they leave a scathing comment uh, for everyone to see. Well, God's church has enemies. There are people who will go out of their way to harm Christianity and Christians. For some of them, it's because the Christian faith stands opposed to something they feel strongly about. Whether it's their sexual behavior or their religious ideology, or their atheistic beliefs. Some of them fight in the world of ideas, and some of them attack believers physically. Here's the problem. God's people have enemies who do not fear God, and so try to destroy them or turn them. And our enemies sometimes seem to win. Now we see these enemies in our world today, but we also see them in the pages of Scripture. In fact, the Bible warns us about many of these enemies, and it especially warns us about two ultimate enemies. One enemy was the enemy of the Old Testament people of God, Israel, and one enemy will be the enemy of the New Testament people of God, His church. Now, here in Daniel, we see them together are superimposed on each other as if, as if they're the one person because, you see, Daniel's looking forward into the future. But, but, but here we are in that future. The first enemy has come and gone. The 
second enemy is still to come. And we saw that first enemy in our previous sermon on Daniel. You may remember a mighty, majestic messenger from God had had revealed to Daniel what was going to happen in the next few hundred years of Israel's history. And those prophecies would be literally fulfilled. And so in verses 2 to 35 of Daniel 11, we saw the heirs of Alexander the Great, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, will battle things out. And we saw how God's people in the promised land will be caught in between and badly affected. And particularly we saw that the king of the north would arise as this great enemy of God's people who will persecute the people of God in a terrible manner, who will kill many of God's people, who will defile the temple with an abomination. And some of God's people will be seduced by his flattery. But it says the people who know their God will stand firm. And some, called the wise, would persuade others to stand against him, even at the cost of their own lives. And as we look back at at this prophecy, we can confidently say that, that all this happened between Old Testament and New Testament times. And the enemy was a Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes. But now, from verse 36 onwards, we're looking ahead at the enemy that is to come. And let me tell you, it's much harder to interpret prophecy before it happens than after it happens. And many, many people have tried to predict the wars and actions of this enemy from this passage, but, but you know, it's difficult. But here's one big mistake that's easy to make. Because you see, right up to this point, Every verse is literally fulfilled. When it talks about a king, literal king. War, literal war. Land, literal land. Temple, literal temple. Everything's concrete. And verse 36 onwards reads like the previous verses. So it's easy to assume that it'll be read as literal prophecy as well. Until we remember one thing. The coming of Christ changes everything. For the Old Testament people of God, God's blessings were material blessings in a physical piece of land. For us, we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ and we look forward to the real blessings of God's presence in the the promised land of the new creation. You see, all the structures of the Old Testament are pictures that point forward to the reality of the new. And since verse 36 to 44 speak about what's happening in our time after the coming of Christ, then we need to read them in that way. They they, they use the categories of the past to describe the future. They use the same language as verses 2 to 35, but they're describing something much bigger. So now we're going to look at those verses. And to control our interpretation, lest we resort to fanciful speculation, we're looking at 2 Thessalonians 2, our New Testament reading today. That's the control. As Antiochus was a terrible, terrible enemy of God's people in the past, this passage describes a terrible, terrible enemy of God's people for the future. 2 Thessalonians calls him the man of lawlessness. In verse 36, we see that he will will do as he wills, whatever he wants. He does not submit to God's authority. He is not religious as such because he exalts and magnifies himself above every God. In fact, he speaks astonishing things against the God of gods, the true God. And since he puts himself above every God, well, he's, he doesn't have, he, he's his God, isn't he? And in fact, 
he seems to have success against God's people for a time. Uh, in verse 36, it says, He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. You see, even then, God is still in control. Remember what we saw earlier on in Daniel. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom He will. Even this guy. And God limits the time for him to do his damage. Uh, the fact that his religion is himself is highlighted again in verse 37. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to any other god. He magnifies himself above all. But what he does honor in verse 38 is the god of fortresses. And this he honors with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. Now, if he doesn't honor any gods and yet he honors his god of fortresses, it means that he's, he's paying He's using whatever resources he has to honor this, whatever makes him strong. He pays, pays, pays in order to get whatever it is. Don't know what it's going to be, but whatever it is that makes him strong, he spends his money on. And with its help, he can deal, it says, with, a great, with the strongest fortresses, achieve great strength. He rewards his supporters in verse 39 with honor, makes them rulers under him. They divide up the land for a price. You see, the land is what, that's what God gave to his people, divided up the inheritance of his people. And now this guy is dividing up the land in exchange for, these, for the loyalty of his followers. He's putting himself in God's place, making himself, using that worldly power to become powerful, to stand in God's place. Now look at what 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 says in your handouts. The day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you see the connection? And friends, whenever you see a human being using worldly power to usurp God's place and make himself the center of people's loyalty and ultimate allegiance, you see someone like this man of lawlessness. Even in Paul's time, he was able to say in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And one of those people who is like that is going to be this man of lawlessness, this evil king. So what does he actually do? Well, once again, we, we have a picture. Remember, he uses the categories of the past, the king of the north, the king of the south, the glorious land, all those categories that we've got in the past to describe the future. So the evil man is like Antiochus, the king of the north. So, so in the picture, it's like it's him, but it's not really him. It's, it's a picture of this man of lawlessness of the future. And in the picture, verse 40, we see the king, those things again now. The king of the south attacks the evil king and he fights back with chariots and horses and, and now many ships and he wins. He, he takes many countries, including verse 41, the glorious land. Once again, God's people are the collateral damage in the war. He invades God's land as part of his larger campaign. And in this picture, Edom and Moab and, and most of the Ammonites escape. So he doesn't win everywhere, but he does win big. And in the picture in verse 43, he takes Egypt and Libya and Kush beyond. And his victory means he's getting more and more powerful. But he isn't all powerful. And there's a problem back in, back, uh, news from the east and the north, it says, comes to him. There's a problem back there. So he's got to leave from, 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 the, from Egypt, North Africa. He's got to go back up. Uh, to, to where he comes from in the east and north. And how is he going to get back up there? Well, again, he's got to go through the promised land. He invades God's land. 
And as he does, he lashes out against God's people. Verse 43, he goes with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And then in verse 45, he shall pitch, pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. What's the sea? It's the Mediterranean Sea, isn't it? And the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion. In other words, his armies are occupying the promised land that God's given his people. See, God's people have enemies that do not fear God and so try and destroy or turn them. And the enemies sometimes appear to win. Now, what does this mean? Remember, this is picture language. So it's not actually talking about a literal war against literal countries with literal chariots and literal tents in the literal land. It's using this picture, the categories of the past, to describe the future. So we need to transpose it to a New Testament key. And when we do this, we see that this is a highly powerful, evil person who worships himself, whose main objective is not so much a primary interest in wiping out Christians, but a selfish agenda of power and wealth. And he is very, very powerful, but he's not all-powerful. There are those even outside God's people who will oppose him. And God's people, those who trust in Jesus, will go through times of terrible suffering caused by this evil person. To further his agenda, he will set himself up in the place where God's people are meant to be. He will treat God thing, God's things as if they were his. He will evade God's church. And because God's people get in his way, they will suffer. And suffer terribly. And many will be killed. And if we're transposing this to a higher key, we must consider the possibility that it's not just physically killing they're talking about here, but spiritual. Because... If he deceives people that they do not trust in Jesus anymore, and do not, therefore they do not receive eternal life. And, and, well, that's the equivalent of the Old Testament of killing people, isn't it? Uh, causing them to, to, to miss out on being in God's inheritance, in God's place. Well, look what Thessalonians says. In verse uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Satanic power behind this. Deception. Moving away from the truth. And so friends, this picture of the, the evil king of the north in Daniel is a warning to us, not so much about a literal king in the north, but, but far worse, this man of lawlessness whose attack on God's people isn't literally besieging towns and putting up tents in our lands, but, but seeking to persecute us and to deceive us, driving us away from the inheritance, the heavenly inheritance that Christ promises us. But friends, we do not have to wait for this man of lawlessness to come to benefit from the warnings. Because we've seen that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, even back in Paul's day. The kind of thing that is manifested in this man of lawlessness is already where it, it ought not to be, among, among God's people. We see it again and again in church history. Persecution and oppression happen again and again. Deception happens again and again. Wherever leaders put themselves in God's place rather than humbly listening to His Word 
and lead people astray, we see that. For example, even today, if you look at the church in the West, it seems to be coming under what, what we would consider a terrible delusion. But God has been so clearly in His Word about marriage and gender, and yet, yet so many church leaders in the West are leading their people to say something completely different. Not be the man of lawlessness, but we see, certainly see the mystery of lawlessness happening here as well. Well, what happens to this man of lawlessness? For a time, it says he will go from strength to strength. And it really does seem like the enemy of God's people wins. It really does seem as if God's people are helpless before him. But then suddenly, look at the end of verse 45. He shall come to his end with none to help him. Like God brought Belteshazzar to ruin in one night earlier on in Daniel, God will bring this evil king down as well. How does he do that? Well, it doesn't say here, does it? But we find out in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It is the second coming of Jesus that finally puts an end to the work of this man of lawlessness and brings him to judgment. So what have we seen so far? Well, just as there was an ultimate evil enemy of, of God's people in the past, so will there be one in the future. Many people will be deceived into following him. Many of God's people will suffer because of him. He will appear to win, but don't despair. God will destroy his enemies. Jesus will bring him into an end when he comes. Well, that's all well and good, you might say. But what about the people who have suffered and died before that? Remember how Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were delivered from the fiery furnace earlier on in Daniel? And you remember how Daniel himself was saved from the den of lions? God saves, we said when we looked at those passages, but, but what about God's people who are not saved from the fire? What about God's people who are not saved from the lions? What about God's people now who are being beheaded? Or being kidnapped and, and maybe killed? What about God's people who are victims of Antiochus? What about God's people who will be victims of this enemy to come? What about God's people who are the victims of all the little enemies in between? Does God really save? Or was Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, and Daniel kind of like anomalies? Well, in chapter 12, we see terrible, terrible trouble in the world in verse 1. But at the end of verse 1, God promises deliverance for everyone whose name is found written in the book. God knows those who are His, and He saves His people. But how? Verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. You see, friends, God's people may well die, but God's people will be saved by God even if they die. God will save them by raising them from the dead. And that's an even bigger miracle than, than raising Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego from the fire or Daniel from the lion's pit. 
And after the resurrection, God will reward His people for what they've done for Him in those dark days. Verse 3. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That is God's promise. But you might say, hey, that's, that's a bit of a dangerous promise, isn't it? I mean, how do I know? I mean, you don't go die and then only find out. Well, brothers and sisters, we have the assurance that God will keep this promise because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate wise one who turned many to righteousness. His enemies put him on the cross. He was killed by wicked men, yet God raised him to everlasting life and, and re-exalted him to glory forever. God raised Jesus from the dead as he promised, and he will raise us also. But friends, there's a, also another side to this resurrection. Some people are raised to everlasting life. But, and I didn't quite finish reading verse 2 just now, some to shame and everlasting contempt. God's people will be saved even though they die, and God's enemies will not escape His judgment just because they die. God will save His people and destroy His enemies, and not even death can stop that. That is the assurance for God's people and the warning for his enemies. And so, but, but you know, this is not going to happen in Daniel's generation. And so Daniel's told in, in verse 4, you, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. Because actually it's only after Jesus and his resurrection that we really understand the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. When you watch a movie, do you notice usually what happens is you get a climax at the end where all the problems get worse and worse and worse and then resolved? You notice that? Right? Uh, and, well, this is like that in the book of Daniel. Huh? We've got like, we've just had the climax. The resolution is, is, the, is, the, is the resurrection of God's people and the judgment. And then you know what happens next in the movie? There's like a final scene before the closing credits. Right? Where everything's resolved, things a bit more relaxed, the characters talk to each other, they look forward to the future. You know what I'm talking about? Well, verse 5 to 13 is a little bit like that. I remember the whole thing start, this whole vision started we, uh, with, with this being revealed to Daniel by this, by this heavenly being on the, on the banks of the river Tigris. Well, we're back there again. Uh, and uh, Daniel sees him, and he sees, in fact, he sees two other. Uh, Two other angels. Uh, and one of them asked this, this majestic man, he says, How long will it be until the end of wonders? How long? Verse 6. And the man swears with both hands, he swears in the words of verse 7, times a time and half a time, three and a half years. God's people would suffer three and a half years of being like helpless before their enemy. And as we look back, three and a half years would be the time when Antiochus would butcher the Old Testament people of God. And so three and a half years will become symbolic in the New Testament 
of a limited time of awful persecution. Daniel hears this, but of course, he doesn't understand. So he asks in verse 8, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of this? But the messenger tells him to go his way. The words, verse 9, are shut up and sealed to the time of the end. What's more important than understanding all the details is being prepared. Many will purify themselves, verse 10, and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. The wicked won't be prepared. The wise will. And when the time of the end comes, verse 10, none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand. And friends, if we are wise, and if we understand that there is a great but limited persecution to come, then we too will prepare ourselves by purifying ourselves. We will make sure that we have repented of our sins, that we are trusting in Jesus' death on our behalf to make us clean before God, and we will turn from sin and seek to live holy lives. We prepare ourselves for persecution by purifying ourselves. And what should we do if that great persecution comes? Well, verse 12 says, Blessed is he who awaits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Now, what's this about? Well, just before that, in verse 11, you see that three and a half years again, this time written as 1,290 days, that time of great persecution. 1,335 days is just 45 days longer, just a little bit longer. Blessed is he who awaits and arrives there. You see, even though the wicked may oppress and seem to win against God's people, God will destroy his enemies and save his people in the end. So he says, Tahanla. Right? Wait, wait, hang in there. And you will arrive at the time of blessing, not much longer at the end. But what about Daniel? Well, he too comes to an end, but his end is a different one. Verse 13, but go your way to the end and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. You see, friends, it's not just the martyrs who die and rise. It's the experience of all God's people. Daniel will die, but he will stand again in his allotted place at the end of days. And for some of us, maybe all of us, we don't know, maybe we will be like Daniel. We won't see this great persecution. Maybe we'll die first. But if we trust in Jesus, then, then like Daniel, we too will rise and receive our inheritance at the end of the days. So, in conclusion, what have we seen? We've seen a problem. God's people have enemies who do not fear God and so try to destroy or turn His people, and our enemies sometimes seem to win. We've also seen the solution. God will destroy His enemies in the end and will save His people. He will raise His people. And we've also seen what we must do. We must purify, we must prepare by purifying ourselves. We must persevere in trusting God and we must wait for Him to do what He promised. And we've seen this applied in the worst of situations, the attacks of these two ultimate enemies of God's people. 
But friends, the same principles apply whenever we are attacked for serving Jesus, in a, in a lesser way as well, from small enemies. Whether it's from people in our family, whether it's from the boss, the illegal bullies, the false teachers, or the powerful in society, the strategy is the same. Prepare by purifying yourself and persevere in trusting God. Don't be blinded by false teaching even when it becomes popular and lots and lots and lots of people believe it. Don't be intimidated into denying Christ even if your life is demanded of you. And if persecution and oppression ever become so bad that it seems like the enemy of God's have, enemies of God's people have won, then what do we do? Wait patiently. It won't be long. God will judge His enemies and save His people. And whether we die in a natural way like Daniel or are killed by the hands of wicked persecutors, we shall rise and stand at our allotted place at the end of days and share in the great inheritance of the new creation where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain and God's faithful people will shine like the stars in glory forever. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for both the encouragements and warnings that you give to us in the Scriptures. We thank you for the warnings that we've received tonight. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to be prepared, to prepare by purifying ourselves, to persevere, to keep holding fast to your promises. And whether it's big trials or little trials that we will face, may we be ready. May we be faithful. Hold us fast, we pray, and raise us to life at the end. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name.